All right, go ahead, grab your Bibles, you guys. Uh, John 15, we're going to be going through half of John 15, half of John 16. And uh, we're about a year into the Gospel of John. We're going to wrap this up at the end of November. So we still have a couple of months to go uh, before Advent. And then we'll be finishing John. We'll be going into uh, something else uh, for that time. John 15, we're going to pick up in verse 18. Melissa and I have done just dozens of premarital counseling sessions uh, over the years. And if you don't know what that is, um, it, it really just means that if you're gonna get married at Substance, and, and typically if you're at a church that does premarital counseling, you'll sit down with a pastor and um, they will just sort of like teach you how to be married. Um, and I'm, I'm being funny about that. But um, they will just sort of kind of go into all the ins and outs of what marriage entails, what a godly marriage entails. And what they'll basically do is tell you, hey, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's the honeymoon at some point ends. And there are going to be things that are going to rise up in your journey together. Um, there's going to be heartache. There's going to be just tragedy. There's going to be difficult roads that you both will have to walk down. There's also going to be just, you know, an innumerable amount of, of joys and happiness and blessings that God's going to give you. Um, and you're going to get the opportunity to walk through these things together. You're going to get the opportunity to, to walk through these things with, with your family, hopefully, maybe, sometimes. You're going to get the opportunity to walk through these things with your church. And what we're trying to do when we do premarital counseling is we're just trying to shape the expectations of the two people that are coming together and, and getting married, right? Um, but at the same time, it's kind of theoretical, right? I, I'm always kind of more about, I think we should do postmarital counseling, like see us in a year, you know, let us know how things are going. And we, we, we do a little of that organically. Um, but yeah, but, but you, you can only tell a couple so much at the beginning before they've even embarked, you know, on the marriage journey because you don't know what they're going to face. You can kind of, you know, give them a good idea of some of the general things they're going to face. But in some ways it's theoretical. What we're going to see and what we've been seeing over the last few weeks as Jesus has been communicating and encouraging his disciples on the night before his death is he's been sort of giving them pre-ministry counseling in a sense. And what he's been doing is laying out for these brothers just some of the things that they can expect uh, after he dies, rises again, and then ascends the Father. He's going to be sending them out to start this whole church planting mission that's going to spread throughout the world. And he wants to set their expectations. He wants them to know that they're going to be facing some things. And the, the reality is that they already got kind of a clue of some of the things they're going to be facing because they've been hanging with Jesus for three years. So there's really not a lot of mystery, but not everything can be said in terms of what it is they're going to face. Because they're going to be going out into all of these different cultures, and they're going to be faced with all kinds of unique things based on the context that they're in. And Jesus is trying to set their expectation. And that's what we see here in chapter 15, starting at verse 18. And I'm just going to start reading. We're going to go through 16, verse 15. Picking up 15, 18, if the world hate you, Jesus says. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sins. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Verse 5, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is the word of the Lord for us today. Jesus said that following him was going to bring these brothers into some hostile territories. But it was also going to bring them joy if they remembered who they belonged to. So Jesus is doing this thing where he's warning his disciples that although they will be hated by the world on account of his name, he's going to send a helper. We, we learned about this a couple weeks ago. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, to be their guide. So this is a lot that we just read. I'm just really going to take a couple of points from this that we're going to zero down in on. And the first point that we want to look at and unpack is simply that those who belong to Jesus are going to be hated by the world. Jesus said it. Like he couldn't be more plain about how he just communicated that to the disciples. And because he communicated that to the disciples, it means that we have to kind of understand what it means for us as followers of Jesus to be hated by the world. And so there's two things when we want to think about what it means to be hated by the world. Jesus says this, essentially, he says, don't be surprised. He's saying, don't be surprised. The pattern of the world, the pattern of the world is to hate Jesus and therefore hate those who follow Jesus because the world is opposed to the righteousness of Jesus. The system of the world is in direct contrast to the righteousness of Jesus. In John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John reminds us of the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. And we remember, if we go all the way back to Genesis, we see the first murder in the Bible. And it was when Cain murdered Abel because Abel was righteous before God. God accepted 
Abel's uh, sacrifice to him um, because of the motivations of his heart, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice because Cain's heart was not in the right place. And this is what it says in 1 John 3.12. It said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So what this is, is this is an illustration of how the world responds to the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the, had this quote where he said, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. So when we understand that we are living in a world that is just enveloped by a system that is diametrically opposed to the things of God, it's going to produce a particular kind and a variety of kinds of sufferings for Christians, right? It's also one of the ways that we know that we are being served by Christ and serving Christ. Bonhoeffer said, he said, suffering is the badge of the true Christian, Right? If, if, we are just, if we are just conforming to the ways of the world and not being transformed by the renewing of our mind, if we're not being a living sacrifice, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, if we are just sort of like minding our own business, if we are just sort of capitulating to the systems of the world, then they're just going to leave us alone. Why are they going to leave us alone? Because they don't see any difference in us. They don't see us standing up for anything. They don't see us humbling ourselves in the face of things that Christians need to humble themselves in. They don't see us loving our neighbor when it's paramount that we love our neighbor, right? They're going to see us respond the way they do. And so suffering then would not be one of the badges of the true Christians. Now, having said that, not all Christians are, are violently hated by the world, right? Like I hang out with some dudes that don't know Jesus. I don't think they violently hate me. You know, I hope they don't violently hate me because that sounds painful, right? But um, not, not all Christians are violently hated, but some are treated with indifference. I would say if we want to look at Ashland with a little more of an accuracy, it's not that all of y'all are going around our town being violently hated by non-believers. It's actually just more, hey, man, you, you live your life. Let me live my life. Don't go too far. You know, we can talk about things that are good and moral and right and true. But man, I don't violently hate you. In fact, I'm just not really that concerned with you at all. You believe what you want to believe. You live as you want to live. I'm going to live and believe the way I do. And if we just keep it cool, man, you know, we can do burgers, you know, at the Worcester Drive-In on Friday night and we're aces, right? Like everything's great. That's probably a little bit more of what we experience in our particular context. Look what it says in, uh, in verse 19, though. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, when we read the word world, this is how we want to understand it. We, we want to understand it as, as the, the, the system of the world, the sinful world system. 1 John chapter 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, listen to this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That would be the, the system of the world, the sinful system of the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, John says, but it is from the world and the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
right? So for us to not be part of the system of the world, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, the pride of life, all these things that just make us do things because of the motivations in our hearts that have not been redeemed, that have not been turned to Jesus. That's the kind of system that we have been saved from if we are in Christ, right? But it's the system of the world that's going to be opposed to to who we are in Christ Jesus and the lives that we're trying to live as people that have been given over to live righteously, right? And if we do those things, John encourages us, if we do the will of God, if we don't find ourselves immersed in that sinful world system, we will abide forever. So we, we shouldn't be surprised is what Jesus is saying. He's setting the expectations here for his disciples. Turn to, uh, I want to say, let's, let's look at what Peter says about this in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. So you want to make a hard right, go almost to the end, after Hebrew, after James, and go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is what it says, picking up in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. Remember, Peter was there. Peter was there. And you have to wonder if he was thinking this when he wrote this. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And he says in verse 19 here, Therefore let who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? So that gives us this understanding. So, so Peter's like doubling down on the words of Jesus. He's saying that it's, it's likely going to get ugly out there depending on the context you're in. That ugliness looks like a, like a, a thousand different things. But the system of the world is not going to be pumped that you are somebody who is committed to living out the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying, suffer, but suffer well. Suffer according to God's will. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Don't stop doing good. Even though from all sides, you're going to be tempted to stop doing that because you feel threatened. Because that system pushes against what you know to be true and right. Man, you just want to back away. You're like, I don't want this. Jesus is encouraging his disciples the way Peter is, is, is encouraging the churches. He's saying, don't be surprised but you know what? Be encouraged because I've given your soul some help, right? The second thing we see when we learn that we're hated by the world, first thing is don't be surprised. Secondly, set spiritual expectations. If you're a Christian and you know that it's going to cost you something, and by the way, these disciples were under no illusion that this following Jesus thing was the costliest decision that they're ever going to make in their lives. And I think all of them but one was going to end up dying as a martyr. Right? But what Jesus does here and what we need to do here is, is he sets spiritual 
expectations, for the encouragement of our souls, for the encouragement of your soul. Since the world does not know God, it is not, listen to this, you guys have to really listen to this, it is not going to love the things of God. It, it cannot. And those who don't love the things of God, they, they just prove that they're not lovers of God. Jesus wants his disciples to see the world with accuracy. He wants you to see the world with accuracy. He doesn't want you just to build a culture where your expectations of the people who have not been saved and are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, your expectations that they should be living like you. It's not the right expectation, right? It's not the right expectation. To reject Jesus is not a rejection also based on preferences, right? That's what he's saying. That's why his language is so strong. That's why he uses the word hate, right? It's not just a rejection based on prejudice. It's not like me saying, you know, I'll have, I'll have the everything pizza, just hold the anchovies, right? It's not like me saying that I love pizza, but just not with anchovies. But give me all the pizza you can give me, right? It's, it's not the same thing. It's either we have all of Jesus or none of Jesus. We take all of Jesus' words and, and we, we commit ourselves to obeying everything that he teaches us in Scripture. We don't get to pick and choose or, no, or none of it applies, right? According to Jesus, there's no middle ground. You can't be fine with Jesus but choose to just not be a follower of Jesus. To not be a follower of Jesus means you're not fine with Jesus. Even if you can say, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I just, I'm indifferent. He's okay. Jesus is saying, no, what you're showing by your rejection of me is rejection of everything that God has laid out, right? Since he is the creator, since he is over all things. This helps us set spiritual expectations for the world's relationship to Jesus and to us. That's what Jesus was trying to do with his disciples here. What's interesting is that when we set our expectations rightly, it moves us towards love, not hate, even though we might be faced with hatred from those who are in the world system and they just reject the way that we are living and believing. I think Christians have a really hard time remembering the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, in their case, speaking of the world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see. They can't see. This means you, you can move toward your unbelieving neighbors with, with love and grace and mercy because they are not able to see what the eyes of your heart has been made to see. So my dad got in a car accident when he was 12 years old. He was on his bike. He got hit by a car. And I, two things happened, okay? I, I've never been able to figure this one out. Two things happened when he got hit by the car. He broke his arm and he lost his sense of smell for the rest of his life. I don't know how those, I'm not a doctor. Zach Watson's not here, so I don't know, what to, I don't know who to ask about why that was the case. Um, but both those things happened. He lost his sense of smell. You know, growing up with a dad who can't smell, okay? Um, I was not angry at him because he couldn't smell the, you know, the lovely aroma of coffee brewing in the morning. You know, I didn't say, dad, I, you know what? I, I'm going to strangle you if you just continue not smelling this beautiful smell every morning. 
you know, as the coffee is being made, right? Um, that's the dumbest illustration I've ever given to point out <laughs> that this can be how the church treats an unbeliever, right? It can be how we treat an unbeliever. Like they should have the same spiritual senses that we have, but they can't see what you can see. They're, they're going to make... They're going to make moral decisions. They're going to make life choices that lack godly wisdom and conviction. Why? Because they lack godly vision. Their eyes haven't been opened. This doesn't mean we shouldn't encourage them towards things that please the Lord. We should, right? In fact, many unbelievers can and do make decisions that align with God on a moral level, which, by the way, helps them to create a more flourishing society, right? Those things are true. Those things are good, right? But when they don't, when they don't because the eyes of their heart haven't been opened to the words of Jesus, the way the disciples are understanding the words of Jesus, the way we are understanding the words of Jesus, to be authoritative, to be words that have come from the very mouth of God that has been breathed out, if they don't receive those words in that way, you know what doesn't convince them that God is true? Our anger. Our guilt, our shame, our unkindness. That doesn't convince them of anything other than, gosh, you guys say that you're all about those things until you're not. Or until you get angry that I'm not. Or until you want to fight me because my worldview doesn't align with your world view. So we, we kind of, we're, we're, sometimes we're walking contradiction, right? We say that we believe that it takes the eyes of our hearts to be opened by the words of the Holy Spirit, like Jesus is teaching here, so that we actually believe the words of the Lord and we're, and we're being changed by those words. And then we're intolerant of those who haven't been changed by those words. How is that possible? Jesus is saying the world hates me, the world will hate you. The world persecuted me. They will persecute, persecute you. It's going to get, get rough out there at times. That's what he's trying to tell his disciples. But Jesus also told us how to treat those who hate us, didn't he? He also told us how to treat those who persecute us. He tells us in Luke 6, 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend uh, to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. They get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind. Listen to this. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It's phenomenal right? It's a phenomenal thing to remember that your neighbor, his eyes, her eyes may have not been opened to the glory of Jesus. Their life not, may, may not be experiencing the transformation that your life is. You know what they need to see? Your transformed life. That's what they need to see. 
An untransformed life needs to see a transformed life so that God might use that transformed life to transform their life. By the way, sometimes Christians are not hated because of the gospel message, right? Sometimes they are hated for how they communicate the gospel message. They preach love, but they don't practice it. They promote, right, a godly lifestyle. Godly lifestyle, right? But they do just a horrible job of living it out. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Make peace with those you disagree with. Serve those who don't believe what you believe. Treat those who don't share your faith with so much kindness and humility that they will absolutely have their minds blown when the fruit of the Spirit comes pouring from your life into their life. I heard Matt Chandler, he's a pastor out in uh, Dallas, Texas. I heard him say this recently, kindness is not complicity. But Ronnie, if I'm nice to them, does it mean that I agree with everything they do? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm nice to my wife and I don't agree with everything she does, right? Kindness is not complicity, right? Kindness is how we see Jesus treating people, by the way, who all, by their lifestyle, disagreed with his words. Because none of them were perfect. And that's you and that's me, by the way. But remember that kindness is not complicity. Does truth need to come into the equation? 100%. But how, how do you impart that truth? How do we as a church impart that truth? We're hated by the world, but we don't hate the world. We hate the world's systems that are in opposition to all that God has declared good. And this would be how the disciples were going to live out the words that Jesus is giving them on the night before his death. And here's the second thing. We're going to be hated by the world, but we're also going to be helped by the Spirit. So hated by the world, yeah, but we're also going to be helped by the Spirit. Back in John 14, uh, 16, Jesus mentions that he is sending his helper, the Holy Spirit, to his disciples, and he will teach them all things. That's what he says the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to teach them all things. And then he's going to bring to remembrance all that he taught them. And he just goes a little further here by unpacking the role of the Holy Spirit, who he said he's going to, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. He will guide God's people to truth. The Holy Spirit is who glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit living inside of you, if you are somebody who has been transformed by the gospel, is how you are able to believe the words of Scripture, how you're able to be reminded of the words of Scripture. It's how when you are sharing the gospel with somebody, that the Holy Spirit convicts them through the words that you're sharing to them. That is, that is how the Holy Spirit helps us in this world of which we are sometimes hated violently or hated in all kinds of other ways, right? Jesus says, I'm sending my helper to you. And this helps us just more fully understand the role of the Holy Spirit, how vital it is in the life of the church and the world. Because Jesus said he is going to the Father in verse 10, it means that the Holy Spirit will be the one to convict the world of sin and illuminate people's hearts to believe the truth of the gospel. Isn't it great that's not on your shoulders? Isn't it great that Jesus didn't tell his disciples, now, boys, I need you to get out there and do it. Um, the Holy Spirit's going to be of some help. He's going to do a little bit of the work. But he's just not going to hold your hand. He's not going to spoon feed you. You need to get out there and get it done. There's nowhere in Scripture that that language is used. 
Does that mean you still got to get out there? You got to put one foot in front of the other? You got to get out of bed in the morning? You do. You do. But the, but the results are not on your shoulders. And what a gift of grace that is for all of us here. What a gift of grace that the helper that's being sent to us is not someone that's just sort of like holding our hand while making us do all of like the, the tough rowing with our other hand, right? That's not rowing, is it? Um, he does the work. He does the work through us. But make no mistake, he does the work. This is how the Holy Spirit's relationship with us in the world works, right? We're, we're like light bulbs is what we are. We're like light bulbs powered by the Holy Spirit to shine the light of Jesus to those who are living in darkness. If you're a Christian, this is how Jesus goes with you everywhere you go. That's why Jesus says, it was too much. it's to your advantage that I go. Because as I'm living here on the earth, I, I, I have physicality. I'm fully God. We believe this about Jesus. But he was also fully man, which means on a physical level, he can only be in one place at one time. And so what Jesus was saying was, hey, when I go and leave you with the Holy Spirit, who's going to be doing these things I'm telling you he's going to do, it's actually better than I'm gone. You're going to have a, a level of empowerment and equipping and encouragement that you can't possibly have if I just stayed here being in one place all the time. So what this means is that if you're a Christian, Christ goes with you everywhere you go because the Holy Spirit is inside of you, Right? It's not like, you know, it's not like Peter Pan's shadow where he's like, he's like trying to catch you, right? And you're, you're like jumping in and out of it. Like he's there. He's there with you in your heart, indwelling in you all the time, right? This is why Jesus says that it was such an advantage. You are empowered to be a witness to the truth of Jesus because the spirit of truth is living inside of you. So yes, you may be hated by the world because the world doesn't know Jesus like Jesus just said to us but you've been given a helper who equips and empowers you to persevere in the faith. And these were brothers that were going to need to persevere. And you know what, whatever your context is, whatever your situation has, these brothers were going to suffer in ways that most of us are never going to suffer. There's different levels of suffering. There's many different things that can derail you from your faith. And Jesus sends a helper to us so that we persevere in the faith, so that we're not derailed, so that those systems of the world that are so powerful and they're so alluring and they're things that you want to sort of, you're drawn to, right? You, 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 want, to, you want to become part of some of these things because they're enticing. The Holy Spirit pulls you back. He helps you to persevere in your faith. The problem, there's always a problem, the problem is we don't utilize the help we've been given. We don't ask for the help that's literally living inside of us. Now, our daughter Beth, um, she's old now, but when she was really little, um, she was seriously the most independent child ever born in the history of births, of babies. Um, she just refused. It's just she refused any and all help, right? I mean, that girl would have yelled at the doctor during her delivery if she could have talked, right? I can do it, right? Um, she just wanted to do everything on her own. And then, and then when she couldn't, she would do this, this thing where she would just give up, right? Um, it was super fun. And it's some of our fondest memories as parents. Um, but in similar ways, we, we don't avail ourselves of the help that Jesus has given us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't pray to be empowered. 
We don't pray to be equipped for every detail of our lives that the Spirit is there to help us with. But the question then is, how are we going to survive? And by the way, not just survive, but actually thrive in a world that hates us without the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is pretty clear that we, we cannot, you cannot, I cannot, we cannot thrive in this world without supernatural help. It's not possible. That's what he's saying here. So we need to tap into it. We need to pray to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so we have the courage to dialogue with those who disagree with us and, and do it in love and compassion. Like we need the Holy Spirit's help to be able to do it that way, right? We need to pray to be empowered by the Holy Spirit when we have a troublesome conversation that, that we don't have any words or patience for so that the Holy Spirit can give us those fruits and those characteristics in the moment. We need to pray to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love and to care for one another when it's hard as nails, right? We need to pray to, be love, and to, be, to love and care for our spouses and, and to do it in sacrificial rather than selfish ways. We need to pray that the Spirit that's already living inside of us would help us with all of the things that we need help with. I mean, I can testify to you all that I have felt the power of the Holy Spirit move through me in situations where I had no natural resources. I had nothing in me. It could have been a hard conversation. It could have been a particular event that was just the hardest thing in the world to step into. It could have been a troubled relationship that through the years had just not gotten better. Now there was a, there was a confrontation that was imminent. All kinds of different hard things where you're stepping into what you would say would be hostile territory and you got nothing for it and you're afraid and you don't know that you have the kind of character and the kind of fruit that you want to display, but you don't think you have it in you. Well, guess what? You do have it in you, but you don't have it in you. You have it in you because the Holy Spirit is in you, but you don't have it in your flesh. So that's why we drown everything. We bathe everything in prayer. Why? Because you're facing those situations like every day. Like there's something uncomfortable and awkward every day. And you need the Holy Spirit to empower you and to equip you, to help you, to train you. And the Holy Spirit will do that, right? When you are in a situation where you need to stand and you feel like crumbling, he will lift you up. You will be wobbly but upright. And it's okay to be wobbly. There's probably never a time we aren't wobbly, but we'll be upright. The same power that the disciples were about to receive is ours. Not, not, not power like to conquer the world, but to be like Christ in the world, which is how Christ saves the world. How do we know this power is real? How do we know that, that it's legit? How do we know that this help is ours? Let me close with this one observation. And then we'll move into our time of communion. This is how we know it. Jesus was not worried about his disciples. And I really want us to pause and sit with that. Jesus was not worried 
about his disciples. These words of, of his to his disciples the night before his death, if we could have been there, they are not words filled with anxiety and worry about what it is that the disciples were going to be facing. Jesus was not worried about his disciples. When he said the world will hate you because it hates me, he was setting expectations, but he was not communicating any hesitation on his part. Jesus promised them help. Now here's the thing. Jesus doesn't believe he left Christians slightly under-resourced after he left the earth. Sit with that for a minute. When Jesus left the earth, when he said, I'm leaving you a helper, there was nothing in him that thought, man, I know they're going to need a little bit more than that, so let me get up to heaven, see what I can come up with. Jesus was not worried about his disciples. He did not leave these brothers under-resourced. It's something for us to consider. He did not leave us as orphans like we learned two weeks ago. He left us with his spirit to bear witness about him because we have been made clean by him. You have everything you need. You have everything you need. You can breathe with confidence. You don't have to be paralyzed by the future. You don't have to fear whoever wins the election next year. You don't have to do that. You may feel like some of your beliefs as a Christian are coming under a threat. Guess who's not threatened? Jesus. Not threatened by any of this. Jesus is not worried about you. He is not under resourced you. He left you with himself. And that means you have everything that you need. Turn with me back to 2 Peter. And I'm going to finish our time with just reading this passage, which I hope will be such an encouragement for you. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is Peter laying out everything that we have in Christ because he didn't leave us as orphans. He is not worried about us and he did not leave us as under-resourced disciples. Verse 3, 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Notice the all things by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that you becoming more like Jesus, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, 
you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not worried. Jesus is not under-resourced you because he left us with the spirit that is living and breathing and moving inside of us. We have everything that we need to face whatever confronts us in this world. Praise the Lord. Amen. We're going to take communion. And what we're going to be doing as we take of the bread and the cup is we are going to be celebrating the reality of what I just said. If you are not a Christian, if you are somebody who has not uh, repented of your sins and received the good news of the gospel, we would ask you um, to just hold off because this is for people who have made that commitment, who are part of the church family. It wouldn't mean much to you to come and partake of something um, if you are not somebody who has committed your life because of, a, of the death and resurrection of Christ. But what I want to do is I want to pray for you. I want to take seriously that the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you right now. He might be prompting you right now. He might be convicting you right now. Because what our desire as a church is, is that you would come into this knowledge of Jesus, this sweet knowledge and salvation that only Jesus provides so that you then could have the help of the Holy Spirit. So then you then could take of these elements, the body of Christ as we eat the bread, as the blood of Christ as we drink the cup, remembering the sacrifice that Christ made so that he can encourage us once again. He can strengthen us spiritually once again as we go out into a world of which we are going to be stepping into some hostile territories at times. So I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to give us some time to, to do a little business before the Lord. Maybe there are some convictions that have, that have just surfaced in your life as I was preaching. You want to bring those before the Lord before you come and partake of the elements. And if you're somebody who doesn't know the Lord, it's a matter of just... Believing the gospel, believing the work that Jesus did on the cross, repenting of your sins, coming into this new understanding, this new life, this new lifestyle, this new journey where you now have a helper. You now have a savior. You now have hope beyond this world. So let's bow our heads. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we thank you for this help. You know that the systems of the world are against your righteousness, Lord, and we are people who are trying to live as righteous people, Lord, in this world. So, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, prompt us, encourage us, motivate us to remember who we are, to remember the help that we have living inside of us. We know that you aren't worried. We know that you can't be threatened. We know that you didn't leave us as orphans. You did not leave us under-resourced. But Lord, we are so forgetful. We're so forgetful, Lord. And so Lord, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to remember, help us to utilize and tap into the greatest help that anybody could have, that you have given to us by your very great promises like Peter just pointed out to us. Lord, change our lives, change our hearts, equip us in ways that we're lacking, empower us in ways that we're feeble and that we lack courage. Lord, help us to trust you for the things and for the ways that we need to grow that almost feel impossible sometimes, Lord. 
we pray for that. Lord, we pray for the people that are here that don't quite know you yet, but they're hearing this message, Lord, and it's your Holy Spirit that is maybe changing their hearts, that is surfacing that sin and that guilt that they would like to see erased. Lord, I pray that they would come before you. They would acknowledge you as being the God of the universe. They would acknowledge your work on the cross. They would pray for forgiveness. Lord, they would enter this church family so that we would be able to walk with them and rejoice with them and to encourage them. Lord, would you do this work in the hearts of some out there today? For the rest of us as we take a moment to reflect on our lives and on our sin and on our hope and assurance as we take this bread and this cup, as we take part in this act of, act of obedience that you said, do this in remembrance of me. So Lord, we want to remember you. We wanna remember your sufficiency. You are all we need. And as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we remember that it's only possible because of the cross. And we thank you for that and we rejoice in that. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.